In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit be with us to guide us and inspire us, help us to hear what you want us to hear, not only what is said up here or throughout uh, the attendance, but what you really want us to hear in our minds and in our hearts. So help us to open our minds and hearts to you and to what you have to say. Let us set aside previous notions and just give ourselves to you entirely. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all thanks in Jesus' name. We want to welcome you all and welcome those people who couldn't make it last week for whatever reason. Uh, the registration forms are up here for those who have not registered, uh, please take a handout from last week as well as this week. And we'll kind of go over some of the same details we did last week. Uh, one of those details is that all of these lectures are recorded and are available. And unfortunately, I have to admit my first mistake. Well, Daniel is never really considered a historical prophet. All right. Daniel is a story, not history. And some uh, listings of prophets will include him, but technically he is not a prophet because he is not a real person. All right. It's an allegory, and it is actually um, apocalyptic language that is used in the book of Daniel to cover up or disguise, you might say, not cover up, but to disguise what is really being said. Uh, so Daniel is not uh, one of the official literary prophets, although his book or the writings of Daniel, the story of Daniel, is often listed uh, as part of them. Okay? Uh, that's the best I can tell you. All right? It doesn't mean... And this is true for many of the books of the Old Testament. Somebody else called me about the book of Judith and the Tobit and a few others. Uh, these are stories. They are not history. But they are inspired stories because of the message that they contain. Remember, the books of the Bible are in there because they are inspired not because they are accurate history. And that's true for many of them, the most. The one I think of the most important of those kinds of books is the book of Genesis. Genesis is not history. It is uh, written and developed and sounds like history, but it isn't. It is a book that was written around the 5th century B.C., long after Numbers and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy were written. Long after. All right? Um, and it is a collection of myths and legends and some of history that was handed down verbally. But it's a very inspired book. And you can learn probably more about God the Father in, uh, from the book of Genesis than you can from all of the books of the Old Testament put together. So, don't 
throw them out, you might say, the baby with the bathwater. Uh, when I say that they are history, they are, they are, excuse me, they are stories, but not history. They are inspired stories and have a great, great message. Okay? Enough on that subject for now. All right. I want to get into really talking about uh, not so much history, but God's plan of salvation. Because in order to put the prophet Isaiah into proper context, we re really have to go back and see what that context is, what the God's plan of salvation is, and how Isaiah fits into that. And so that's what we're going to do. If you have your handout from last week, and I wish you would bring that, because we're going to be using this schedule here, which is in last week's handout, quite a bit. Now, I'm not going to read this, because uh, I hope you have read it already. But we will be referring to this, not only today, but throughout this course. All right. Let me begin kind of, the best place to begin is at the beginning, right? When God created mankind, he did so out of love. Even And why? Because even though we say God has no needs, and I heard some priests say this on television recently, God has absolutely no needs. And I, I say, uh-uh, not that. That's, that's not correct. God has one need. And that need is to share his love. Because love cannot be bottled up. If love is bottled up, it is not love. Or if it is, it dies. Love must be shared and rejuvenated and uh, returned and reciprocated, all right, in order to be love. So God's need for love was what created or what caused him to create mankind, even though he knew mankind was not perfect, far from it, except for a few of us, of course. Uh, he knew that mankind was not perfect, but nevertheless, out of his need and desire to love and to share himself, he created mankind. All right. When I say mankind, I also mean women, of course. All right. How could we do with one without the other? All right. He also knew that. As because mankind was not perfect, that he would sin and offend God. But that was not going to stop him. Think of yourselves, you who are parents, if you were wise enough and open-minded enough, before you had children, you realized or should have realized that your children would probably hurt you somewhere along the line, okay? None, none of your children are, per well, mine are, but none of your children <laughs> are perfect, okay? But that didn't stop you from having children. And it's the same with God and his ideas of creation, all right? So, he has this idea 
He wants to create. He does create. Mankind lives. But mankind also sins. And in the process of sinning, there is a breach that is created between him, God, and mankind. This is signified by Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. And the breach is what causes them, Adam and Eve, to be expelled. Because God cannot live with mankind at mankind's free will and desires because of this sin. All right? So, what happens here is God has to have a plan to rectify, to resolve this breach that is created by mankind's sin. And I'm not talking only about Adam and Eve's sin. This is the sin of all mankind. Adam and Eve is only a symbol of all human beings. Adam and Eve is not this historical couple. Again, going back to what I said earlier, it is not a history. It is symbolic of all mankind. And this was written, like I said, around the 5th century B.C., and we don't know who for sure, but it's kind of assumed it was written by the priest Ezra. Ezra, if you were tuned in to the readings at Mass this morning, Ezra happens to be the book that is being read right now. And I would encourage you to pay attention when you hear that, because a lot of what Ezra says will be used later on when we come to 3rd Isaiah. Okay. All right. So God had to have a plan to rectify this breach. And so that plan was in God's mind at the time of creation. Not at some time down the road, but at the time of creation, that plan was already in process. And this is signified, again, by the story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, where Jesus condemns the serpent to crawl on his belly, etc. And then he says that he will send a woman and her seed, or a woman and her son, her child, to really be the redemption process by which mankind will then be restored to the good graces of God. So, Adam and Eve is expelled, and then we go on until around the 20th century B.C. We don't know what happened in between, and that isn't quite important to us. Reality sets in around the 20th century B.C. with the call of Abraham, the first of the patriarchs, all right? God calls Abraham into a covenant a special relationship with him, which is the process by which God is going to begin to rectify this whole breach that is created by mankind's sin. God calls Abraham and his wife Sarah. And again, if you 
are tuned into that story, Abraham's name was Abram, A-B-R-A-M, and his wife's name was Sarai. And it was changed to Abraham and Sarah. And when God changes somebody's name, or when God dictates what the person's name is going to be before he uh, is born, that means that particular person has a very special relationship in God's plan of salvation. And if you think about it, look at all the people whose names were changed or dictated before they were born, starting with, for example, John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus himself's name was dictated by the angel uh, to Joseph and Mary uh, before he was born. All right, Peter's name was changed from Simon to Peter. Paul's name was changed from uh, Saul to Paul because they had special uh, roles in God's plan of salvation. All right, going back, you have the same thing with Abraham and his family. Abraham only had, well, he had two sons, but only one was actually accepted by God, Isaac. The other one was not accepted uh, by God, and that's another story altogether, all right? Uh, So Isaac became then the father of uh, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Jacob, which really then began to mushroom what was originally or the original uh, Jewish family. They weren't called Jews at that time. And they weren't called Jews for a long time afterwards. But these were the three patriarchs. Remember, as I said last week, God had to have partners, human partners, to implement this plan of salvation. So over a period of time, the first period in this little schedule here, He had the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as primary partners. You might add uh, Jacob's second youngest son, Joseph, uh, as one of those also. But he is definitely not considered uh, one of the official patriarchs, although he had a very prominent role in uh, this plan of salvation. Uh, when the people were first sent down uh, to Egypt, okay? Now, let's advance another almost 500 years to the time of Moses. But between the time of Abraham and Moses, there was no written laws, there was no rules, there was no Torah, there was uh, no structure, there were no official leaders within the Jewish nation except these three patriarchs over a period of time. Now, advancing, like I said, almost 500 years while the people were in Egypt, they turned from being not only welcomed by Joseph into Egypt, but over a period of time they became slaves because 
of uh, the new pharaohs that came along who were afraid that the multiplication of the Hebrew people would outnumber the Egyptians and in the event of war, the Hebrews might turn. And so they became uh, slaves, you might say. You lost my trend of thought, but that's okay. All right. All right. Moses becomes the next major leader for the Israelite people. Remember, Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Remember the story about Jacob wrestling with the angel all night and so forth and being struck uh, in the hip joint. And uh, at the end of that, his name is changed to Israel. Again, signifying that he is, has a major role in God's plan of salvation. Right. Uh, now, Moses becomes the next major character and probably the most influential person throughout the entire Old Testament. The most influential person, human being, throughout the entire Old Testament. Because God had a special relationship with Moses and Moses is responsible for initiating but not writing the Torah, okay? Many people, and particularly Protestants, believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And they'll swear by it, but they haven't done their history because that's impossible. Uh, and it says so in many ways. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, it talks about how the Israelites were separated into various uh, specific locations after they crossed the Jordan and after their long wandering in the desert for 40 years. Well, Moses was dead at that time, so Moses would not have known that uh, and therefore could not have written that in the book of Deuteronomy, etc., etc. I won't go into all of that detail. All right? But... God is now bringing these people out of Egypt. While they were in Egypt, and the plan, part of the plan was, they were sort of corralled, you might say, into a very specific area of Egypt, which was a very fertile area uh, that would accommodate a large number of people. And they were welcomed by Joseph in the beginning, but over a period of time, as I said, they were turned into slaves. And now Moses is bringing them back out of Egypt and to return eventually to the promised land. However, these people, because they had no leaders, because they had no written rules or regulations to follow, they followed their tribal customs and traditions up until this time of Moses. And when they received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai shortly after leaving Egypt, and Moses started to uh, explain the Ten Commandments, they didn't particularly like that because it gave them restrictions and it gave them things that uh, imposed certain controls. And they didn't particularly like that. So when Moses went up the mountain two or three times, you know, 
And that's where we get this idea of God is always up there because Moses met God at the top of the mountain several times. I used to say he needed an elevator or an escalator because he was an old guy at that time and really must have had difficulty getting up there. But nevertheless, while he was up there, they created this molten calf because they wanted something to worship like the Egyptians had way back you know, in Egypt. And they wanted something physical. And God was very upset with them because this is where I am the Lord your God. You shall not have strange gods before me. One of the Ten Commandments. That's where it comes from. God is condemning these people already. But he still loves them and still carries them on. He doesn't like what they're doing, and he says so to Moses. And when Moses comes down from the mountain and sees these people dancing and having a great time, you know, dancing around this molten calf, he gets so angry that he takes the Ten Commandments and throws it at them, and of course it scatters and uh, shatters all over the place. And then he has to go back up and get his Xerox copy. (laughs) But as Moses is uh, leading the people now, and for 40 years, why did they wander in the desert for 40 years? When they knew where they were going, the promised land wasn't that far away. It's just across the border from Egypt. And the two-day, I mean, the two-weeks walk would have done it easily for a large number of people. And you have to remember that Abraham and his family went back two or three times back and forth. So they knew where the promised land was. So why did they wander in the desert? Because that was a form of punishment for the molten calf situation. God punishes but doesn't destroy people. At least at this point in time. So punishment doesn't always mean destroying. Good parents will punish their children who disobey them or do things wrong more as an example. But they don't kill them. At least most of them don't. You might feel like it once in a while, but you know, you don't do that. All right. And God is the same way. There are several, several stories throughout the Old Testament where God punishes severely, but also shows mercy and love. Now, let's, and I'm, I'm of course, doing this as quickly as possible because I want to cover a lot of territory this morning. I threw an awful lot at you last week, and if you didn't get it all, don't worry about it. Little by little, it will be explained and settled in, I hope. Okay. Eventually, the Israelites do come into the Promised Land, and as I said, they are settled there. But Moses dies before they cross the uh, Jordan into the Promised Land. Now, a lot of people will say, well, oh, why did he die? That's awful. God... You know, well, the poor guy was about 120 years old. You know, if you go by actual figures, you know, he was 40 years old when he uh, left the Pharaoh's home after killing one of the Egyptians. 
He spent another 40 years in uh, tending sheep for his mother's brother. Uh, and then he spent 40 years of wandering in the desert. Well, the poor guy, you know, he was, he's had it. And I can't blame him. Uh, so God has him rest in peace. Not pieces, like a few others. Okay. So they come into the promised land. And here we have, see, they have, they lost their great leader of Moses, but they have the judges now. This is the time of the judges. These are people that are the heads of the various tribes, of the twelve tribes, and they become leaders within, uh, Israel and the the whole idea of um, governing now takes a little bit of different form, you might say, because the people have started to rebel. They began to, you know, they at first when they came into the new promised land, uh, they were very happy and they settled down and uh, so forth and so on. But they didn't like the idea of being governed by one of their own. And so they started to have problems. Okay. So the judges then begin to start keeping order. But it didn't quite work out very well. And what happened is that each of these little locations where the 12 tribes were settled, started to develop their own kingdom. And God did not like that. He was their king. He was going to take control and protect them. Part of the first covenant made all the way back with Abraham and and then renewed with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Caleb and all of those people was that God would give them descendants, would give them land, which was very important because these were nomadic people and they moved around a lot to places wherever they could uh, feed uh, and raise their flocks. But God didn't want that. He wanted them to start settling down, so he gave them specific land and He would be their God. He would give them protection. They didn't need other kings. Uh, He would give them uh, judges, in this case, at this time period, but they didn't need other kinds of uh, rulers, like the nations around them. But they started looking at these nations around them and how prosperous they were becoming, and how when they had little battles or skirmishes and wars and so forth, the leaders were always there and guiding them. And the Israelites didn't have that. And that's what they wanted. So they started setting up their own kings. Within each of the tribes, there was a leader who then sort of kind of created uh, or made himself a king. And God was not happy with that. And then they said, well, they wanted a king over all of them. And this is when they elected Saul. Not Saul of Tarsus, but King Saul. The first king, and he was supposed to be the ruler over all of them. 
but he was not a good man. He tried hard, uh, but he didn't work out very well, and God was not pleased with him. Uh, So eventually, David comes in. David is then the fair-haired boy, you might say. David unites all of these little kingdoms from all of the 12 tribes, does away with uh, the kings in each of these locations, and he himself is elected king by the majority of all of these other people. So David really is God's messenger. And quite often, the references in the Old Testament not so much in Isaiah, but in the Old Testament, the earlier books, when it talks about a Savior and so forth, it is not talking about Christ. It is talking about David. But David becomes really the epitome of what the Israelite people really wanted. All right? And he, David, built this beautiful, uh, not temple, but palace, you might say. He wanted to build a temple, but God said, no, you build the palace, and I'll have your heir build the temple. The heir, of course, was Solomon. Solomon and David together is what, you might say, developed the golden age of Judaism. Because it be Judah and, and the center was in Jerusalem. We're going to talk more about Jerusalem later. But the center of this now united kingdom of Israel was in Jerusalem. And what had been separate little temples all over Israel now was changed. And the only temple was in Jerusalem. Everything else became a synagogue. A synagogue is a prayer, is a place of prayer and study. It is not a temple. And that is true even today. Even though you see, might see a building that sends, says, uh, Temple, uh, uh, Rift, and there's a few others around here. These are technically not temples. Judah, Judaism, says that there is only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem, and that was destroyed in 70 A.D., never to be rebuilt. But I'm getting a little ahead of my story here. David and Solomon, as we said last week, one of them, we're not sure which, was the one that said or started the idea of writing down Jewish histories. And so you had a group of people, both in the southern part of Israel and in the northern part of Israel, uh, starting to write down their histories. The ones in the southern part of Israel were called the Yahwist people, coming from the word Yahweh. The ones in the northern part of Israel were called the Deuteronomists because what they were doing was they were collecting all of the writings that were attributed to Moses, whether they were written by Moses 
or written by somebody else or written by themselves, they were attributed to Moses and wrote the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. So you have the golden age of Judaism beginning with David and Solomon. Now, unfortunately, when Solomon died, the rule was inherited by his son, Rehoboam, who wasn't a very good man and didn't like the idea of governing this huge nation of Israel. So he decided he was going to break it up again, even though his grandfather, David, uh, spent a great deal of time and effort in uniting it. Rehoboam decided that he didn't want the northern part, and he was going to split it up. And so he and a, another guy by a similar name called Jeroboam, real tongue twisters, you know, after a beer or two, you really get them mixed up. <clears throat> and they divided the kingdom into two parts. The northern part retained the name Israel, and the southern part retained the name of its location of Judah, the province of Judah in which Jerusalem was the capital. Right. But the, the golden age continued on, and Jerusalem and all of Israel became a very prosperous nation for that period of time, right? Uh, because it catered to all of the North African countries, it catered to the Egyptian, uh, uh, the Greek Empire, uh, the Roman Empire didn't come along yet, uh, and it catered to the Silk Road that went through the northern part of Israel. But unfortunately, along with prosperity comes the lack of interest in God himself. Who needs God when we have all of this that we can do? Who needs God and why should we worry about all these rules and regulations that were being set up by Moses? Uh, because we can do these things ourselves and we'll just put God in the temple. And that's kind of what they did. Solomon built this beautiful temple, and it was glorious. It was a symbol of God's presence among his people. In fact, it got to be to the point where God was only in the temple, but what happened outside wasn't any of God's business. And you see what's happening? The evil is beginning to creep in. So, what happens? Along with the evil creeping in, along the good side, that is the writing down of scripture, remember scripture wasn't holy scripture, it started out as history. And that's why it could be changed when people didn't like it exactly how it came out, so they would change it, because it wasn't sacred scripture at that time. That didn't happen until much later. It was history. And it was easy to change it, you know. And when, <clears throat> when they talk about 
thousands being slaughtered in one day. Well, it was easy to take, you know, a hundred and add a couple zeros. And that's what they did. So you got to take the numbers in the Old Testament with a grain of salt, okay? Except for 40, and that has a totally different connotation, which we'll talk about some other time. So, what happened here? With this prosperity comes evil. Because they figure they don't need God, they're going to shut God up. Uh, the whole idea of the only temple being in Jerusalem was great because the people in northern didn't have to go that far. Uh, and the people in southern, they could just say, well, God's in the temple. We don't have to worry about because we're not in the temple. We're outside and we can do what we want. And that was the prevailing attitude that crept in. So what happens is God could have wiped all of those people out, but that would have taken away free will. And that was not God's way of doing things. So he brings in the prophets. And we have four prophets reigning, not reigning, but four prophets preaching or teaching uh, about the same time. You have uh, Amos and Micah in the north, and you have Isaiah and Hosea in the south. Now, if you read those, you'll see that they have exactly the same message. And in some cases, the same wording. It's interesting when you put those four together and compare them, uh, the wording in certain places, not all, but the wording in certain places is almost identical because God has sent these four prophets and later for other purposes, other reasons, other locations, he would send others with different kinds of messages, never contradicting each other, but slightly different to fit the time and the location. So here is where Isaiah comes in. All right. Isaiah comes in during the reign of Uzziah, one of the southern uh, kings. And that is around the middle of the 8th century B.C. Around somewhere between the year 767 and 740 B.C. Now, the prophets did not preach constantly. They preached when God gave them a message, and that message was to go out to a certain group of people. And whenever God spoke, that message would apply to both the north and the south. But because of the distance, and you know, the lack of Facebook and Twitter in those days, uh, they had to have... Uh, prophets in the north as well as in the south saying essentially the same thing. So Isaiah, even though his message applied to both sides, uh, it only probably got out to the southern part at the time. Uh, but that is what Isaiah is doing. Right? So have you got this sort of in context now as to where Isaiah fits and how and why? Okay. Well, Fiona's saying was why were the Jews the chosen people? Well, they were God's instrument of 
implementing his plan of salvation. And they were chosen, not chosen in the way we think of the word chosen, because chosen means a selection of one out of many. And they weren't. They were created as a nation beginning with Abraham. Abraham was not a Jew. All right? Because there weren't any Jews prior to this. The whole, the word Judith, the word Jew, let's get it back. As we said last week, I believe, I said this so many times, so sometimes I forget when. Anyways, the word Jew comes from the fact that in the end of the 6th century B.C., or towards the early part of the 5th century B.C., when the Israelites came back out of Babylon, we're jumping way ahead now, but to answer Fiona's question, when the Israelites came back from Babylon, beginning in the year 539 B.C., with the uh, decree of Cyrus the Great, which was read at uh, Daily Mass here the other day, all right, uh, they came back to the province of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is located. And they were known as Judahites. You know, the same way as Israelites and Prizites and all of these other, the word ites means uh, a person from certain areas. Okay, But after a while, Judahites was difficult for people to pronounce. Uh, it was far more difficult for them to write. And so eventually the word Jew developed out of that. The word Jew does not come from Jerusalem. It comes from Judah, the province of Judah in which Jerusalem was located. All right. But you will not find that in any early book of the Bible. The word Jew is not in any of those early books of the Bible. Only some of the very latest books, and of course in the New Testament. Now, I don't like to reread things that you are asked to read at home, but I want to do that for this particular class <laughs> because it will help, I hope it will help you recognize um, the difficulties that you may have at different times <laughs> And you'll have to do some research. Okay. So let's begin. <coughs> Pardon me. As I said before, the very good place to begin is at the beginning. The vision which Isaiah, son of Amos, Amos, not to be confused with the prophet Amos, place. The vision which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Now, U-Z-Z is pronounced as if it were U-T-Z. Okay? Just like pizza. Uzziah. Jotham. Ahaz. And Hezekiah. These were four kings of Judah. They reigned from 767 B.C. down to 687 
B.C. Right? Approximately 80 years. Now, the first thing that would come to my mind, or did come to my mind, was how can a vision last for 80 years? The vision in this case does not mean vision such as in a dream or a trance. It means a plan, part of God's plan. I'm sure that for you business people, uh, when you're talking about something new, you might say, well, what is your vision for this particular uh, purpose or area or whatever? Okay. Um, and I think that that might be what is necessary to understand here. The whole idea of what God's plan is came to Isaiah over a period of 80 years. Okay. Now, this is an oracle here, a warning. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have raised and reared, but they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owners, and an ass its master's manager. But Israel does not know me, God, or my people, uh, has not understood in other words, if people can recognize what is going on in human life and say, well, because this is happening, such and such will uh, come forward, why can they not recognize what is going on, even though the prosperity of all of the people of Israel is being enjoyed, they should look back to God with thanks and appreciation and worship God out of that praise and, and uh, thanks and pre appreciation rather than turning their back on him. And that's what this kind of means here. It's an indictment, you might say, of Israel, uh, both north and south. And this, these five chapters here are sort of a summary of what the entire book is going to be about. Uh, but we'll get into that as we go along. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with wickedness, evil offspring, corrupt children, they have forsaken the Lord and spurned the Holy One of Israel. Underline that phrase, please, Holy One of Israel, because Isaiah is the first to use that phrase, and it becomes very predominant throughout the book of Israel, and also into the New Testament. They have spoken the uh, they have forsaken the Lord and spurned the Holy One of Israel and apostatized. What does apostatize mean? All right, let's get that kind of square in, in our minds here because it comes up frequently. This is somebody who knows the truth but turns from it into something else of his own convenience. All right. 
they know that the law given to them uh, by God through Moses, which now they have in their possession, but they have refused to obey it, that is the book of Deuteronomy, and therefore they turn to pagan gods. When we get to Ahaz and his wife Jezebel, um, you'll hear uh, much more about that later, apostatizing, because Jezebel was not a Jew. Jezebel was a foreigner, and she brings in her own religion and forces not only her husband, Ahaz, the king, but all the subjects to follow her religion. This is part of apostatizing, because they know better. Why would you yet struck that? I'm sorry. Why would you yet be struck that you continue to rebel? In other words, God is chastising them and they still don't turn from their ways. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a remnant. Now, this is an indication where this was probably written and inserted later after the Babylonian captivity because the term remnant was a promise of God to the Egypt, uh, to the Israelites of a later period. And it is also a prominent phrase that will uh, turn up several times in this book. We would have become as Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. Now, we all know the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. And let, let me go on for a minute. Hear the word of the Lord, princes of Sodom. Listen to the instrument, uh, instruction of our God, people of Gomorrah. What do I care for the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your whole burnt rams and fat of fatlings. In the blood of calves and lambs, I find no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who asks these things of you? What God is saying here is, you are going through the motions of worship, but your mind and your heart are not in it, and your speech and your actions do not follow. What he would really want is simplicity of mind and heart and actions and clean thoughts and, you know, following the rules and dictates of Moses. The whole idea of just throwing holocaust of animals to God but not following through on the inside with your mind and heart is not sufficient. Unfortunately, we have the same thing today. How many people go to Mass on Sunday simply because they feel that mere presence is enough and they don't have to worry about how they worship or if they worship? And that is when you get people who say, oh, I don't get anything out of going to, to Mass. Well, you're not supposed to get something out of Mass. You're supposed to give. You're supposed to give your mind and your heart 
and your speech and your actions to God as an offering. That's what he wants. And then, in turn, he will give you uh, his love. We have the same things today. And that's why Isaiah is very prevalent and common and needed today, as well as it did nearly 3,000 years ago. Trample my courts no more. To bring offerings is useless. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath calling assemblies, festive convocations with wickedness, these I cannot bear. Uh, in the reading this morning from, Isaiah, uh, from Amos, it mentions when will this new moon be over? Do you remember that? Okay. All right. What it really means is, how can I get through this religious holiday so I can go on with my cheating? That's exactly what that means, you see. And Amos is one of the prophets that comes along at the very same time as Isaiah in a different location. And that's what it means. Don't offer God stuff. He wants your mind and your heart. And in return, he will give you abundant love. And you will feel it and you will know it. That's when you can walk away from mass or a worship service or even your private prayer service and feel that you've got something out of it. When you spread out your hands, I will close my eyes to you. Though you pray, the more I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves clean. Put away your misdeeds from before my eyes and cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Make justice your aim. Redress the wrong. Hear the orphan's plea and defend the widow. Now this again is something that we will hear over and over, and Christ continues that into the New Testament. His concern about mankind supporting the uh, widow, the orphan, and the poor in general. All right? Remember, it was Jewish custom, not sanctioned by God, but when the father of a clan died, the eldest son would inherit everything. And the widow would be left nothing. Women had absolutely no legal rights in those days. And children under the age of 30, now you might think of children age 30, but that was the legal age at that time. All right would inherit nothing. The orphans left from parents who died, particularly the father, would have absolutely no legal rights whatsoever and would have no way to educate uh, themselves and develop some kind of a revenue stream. And so that's why Jesus, as well as 
prophets here are trying to get these people to change their minds. They never did, really. But the widow, the orphan, and the poor in general are something that you will see over and over again throughout uh, all of the prophets and, of course, the New Testament Gospels as well. Come now, let's set things right, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they may become white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they may become white as wool. If you are willing and obey, you shall eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and resist, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here is God chastising these people, but at the same time holding out an olive branch, saying that things can be corrected. I will accept your sorrow. And he's turning from your ways. And he's done this over and over and over, not only through the Old Testament. Uh, for example, we all know the story of, the, of Cain and Abel and how Cain is chastised by God and as a mark is put on his forehead as being one marked by God uh, for punishment. And Cain saying, woe is me, you know, this is too much for me. When people see this, they're going to kill me. And God says, no, they won't kill you. I will protect you. So God, even though he chastises Cain for killing his brother Abel, he still says, I will protect you and give you an opportunity uh, to mend your ways. He does this, for example, uh, after Noah and the flood. He gives them an opportunity to uh, re-inhabit the earth and so forth. Remember, these are allegories. These are not historical events. Okay. In the New Testament, Jesus is the same way. The woman caught in adultery, who the men want to stone. God, or Jesus uses probably the most psychological uh, reprimand in all of the Bible. He who is without sin can throw the first stone. And of course, who's going to admit in a group such as this that they are without sin? So, but Jesus did not condemn the woman. He says, is anyone here left to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, well, neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. All right? And compassion. Jesus shows compassion even when it's not even asked for. For example, a week ago, I think Sunday, one of the stories of the gospel was Jesus healing the, the son of the woman of Nain. Now, she didn't even ask him, not heal, but uh, revived him. Right? He was being carried out for burial. And Jesus sees her and knows that he's the son, is her only means of support. Because if he dies and she's a widow, she gets cut off from everything. All right? So he has compassion. 
So he brings the man back to life without even being asked. So it shows signs of God's love. Love for all mankind if they repent from their wrongdoing and correct their ways. Not just for the moment. Uh, so I remember when we were kids, we'd go to confession every Saturday or Friday if you were going to a Catholic school. And, uh, the, you know, the general concept in those days, uh, particularly of children, was, well, that's all right. Don't worry about it. If you commit a sin, you can always go to confession on Friday or Saturday. Uh, well, that's, that isn't what God is after. He's after you really wanting to change your mind and your heart and try your best not to sin again. Uh, and so what follows here is really the carrot you might say uh, after the stick how she has become a prostitute the faithful city so upright and we're talking about Jerusalem here so upright justice used to lodge within her but now murderers your silver is turned to dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and your comrades are thieves. Each one of them loves a bribe and looks for gifts. The fatherless they do not defend. The widow's plea does not reach them. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will take vengeance on my foes and fully repay my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and refine your dross, that is the gold, in the furnace, removing all your alloy. I will destroy your judges as at first and your counselors as in the beginning. But, I wrote that in. But, afterward, that you may, uh, that you shall be called city of justice, faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and her repentant ones by righteousness. Rebels and sinners together shall be crushed, and those who desert the Lord shall be consumed. So, this is something that is promised. Now, this is not a prophecy. This is something that is promised because of God's love when and if they repent of their wrongdoing. And in a way, it is a promise of something that is out there and it is something to work towards. Now, this whole idea of Jerusalem which you will see throughout this book and throughout most of the later books of the Old Testament and the Gospels, is how Jerusalem was looked upon as, you might say, an earthly uh, concept of heaven. It was, to the Jewish people, the center of the earth. It was God's holy seat. And the word Zion, or the holy daughter Jerusalem, were 
fond uh, euphemisms for Jerusalem. Okay. So you might see that daughter of Jerusalem, uh, daughter of Zion. These are just fond memories or fond phrases indicating the beloved city of Jerusalem. Uh, as we would say, you know, San Francisco, the city by the bay, uh, New York, uh, the Big Apple. Um, you might say Louisiana or, or New Orleans, uh, the Big Easy. These are fond phrases. They don't have any legal attachment of any kind, but they are, when they are used, they are looked upon uh, as referring to a particular place with a great deal of fondness and reverence in some cases. Okay? Uh, for example, Rome is the eternal city, uh, the holy land, you might say. Well, there's nothing holy about the land itself. It is because of the memories of things uh, there. So, but over a period of time, be careful, because Zionism today does not have the same meaning. Zionism today is a nationalistic political movement. And so it is not the same thing. The word and the use of Zion over a period of time has changed drastically. In the time that we are talking about, it is a very fond uh, memory or phrase referring to Jerusalem. Okay. Verse 29. You shall be ashamed of your terebinth. Terebinth is a, a grove of trees, okay, a special trees, which you desired, and blush on account of the gardens which you choose. You shall become like a terebinth whose leaves wither, like a garden that has no water. The strong tree shall turn to tinder, and the one who tends it shall become a spark. Both of them shall burn together, and there shall be none to quench them. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Here we go a little bit more about Zion. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain, not high in elevation, but high in esteem, the way it is looked upon, and raised above the hills. Now, if anybody of you uh, have been to Jerusalem, you'll know that uh, all nations shall stream toward it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For from Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, this is something that is going to happen in the future. Now, if you think about it, that has already happened, has it not? 
Look at it this way. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus lived and died in Jerusalem, and that was the center of the beginning of Christianity, would Jerusalem be the city it is today? Verse 6. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with diviners and soothsayers like the Philistines. With foreigners they clasp hands. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the works of their hands. What their fingers have made. And now it's saying that the foreigners have done this, but now you Israelites, you're doing the same thing. And you're going to be punished for it. So, all shall be abased. Each one brought low. Do not pardon them. Get behind the rocks. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and splendor of his majesty. The eyes of human pride shall be lowered and the arrogance of mortals shall be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Now here again, it's comparing the uh, evil ones of Israel with what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the legend of Sodom and Gomorrah is that it was uh, destroyed by uh, hellfire and brimstone. Okay? Whatever that is. Um, some people say that it was an earthquake. I read, heard just the other night on the television one of these so-called religious programs that it was done from a meteor from outer space. We have no way of knowing. Okay? We have no way of knowing. Right. I lost my place. Where are we? Um, okay. For the Lord of hosts will have his day against all that is proud and arrogant, all against all that is high, and it will be brought low. Yes, against all the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon were the great pines forests in Lebanon, which of course was not Israel. It was immediately north of Israel, but it was looked upon as the the cherished wood, uh, not cherry wood, but cherished wood uh, for the uh, building of the palaces uh, of David, etc., and for the temple. Okay. And so these were always used as sort of goals or uh, benchmarks uh, to try to reach, okay? Again, all of the lofty mountains and all the high hills, against every lofty tower and every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and all stately vessels, then human pride shall be abased and arrogance of mortals brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The idols will vanish completely. 
people will go into caves in the rocks and into holes in the earth. And this is also repeated almost word for word in Matthew uh, chapter 24. Uh, at the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty as he rises to overawe the earth. Um, going back for a minute, uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are often considered the little apocalypse and it talks about the end of the earth. We're talking about the gospel of Matthew. It talks about the end of the earth and how people will uh, go into caves and wish that they could pull the earth in over them and so forth and so on. It uses the same words out of Isaiah. One of the many, many places that uh, Isaiah is mentioned in the Old Testament. Someone said that Isaiah is mentioned or referred to uh, almost 300 times in the, Old, in the New Testament. Okay. On that day, people shall throw to moles, uh, shall throw themselves really, to moles and baths, their idols of silver and gold, uh, which they made for themselves to worship. And they shall go into caves and rocks and so forth. At the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, as he rises to overawe the earth. Uh, this is really referring to the end of the earth. Okay. As for you mortals, stop worrying about in whose nostrils what is is but a breath for of what worth I think. The Lord, the Lord of hosts will take away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and staff, all support of bread, of support of water, hero and warrior, judge and prophet, diviner and elder, nobleman, etc. These are sort of References to things that happen, uh, let's say, roughly a hundred years later at the siege of uh, Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. All right. I want to kind of go uh, quickly on this because we don't have to go through every word. Uh, this continues the judgment of Israel for some time. Even over in chapter 4, it talks about how the women, you know, women were never uh, recognized much in the way of good things in the Old Testament. And here, of course, they're pointed out in evil ways. Uh, and to the fact that because all of the men had been carried off in one way, or the other are killed in battle, that there was a shortage of men uh, to become husbands and fathers. And so you have a real problem there. Okay. It says, Then will the Lord create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her place of assembly a smoking cloud by day and a light of flaming fire by night. All right, this is the same example used in Exodus, when the people were traveling uh, or wandering in the desert, they could not wander as long as the uh, pillar of cloud during the or the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. They could not move. As long as those were stationary, they had to remain stationary. Okay, 
And so this is the same kind of thing here happening. Um, God will lead them one way or the other. And he's not talking about literally a smoking cloud or a a pillar of fire. Uh, He's talking about his word and the people he will bring forth. In chapter 5, the song of the vineyard, if you go to Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 31 to 45, you will see a very similar story there. About how um, a friend's vineyard is being looked upon as Israel. And how it is the vine owner uh, is God and the people are the grapes and what they should be producing. So I'm hurrying up trying to hear so we can uh, close on time. All right. says, those who join house to house, and I'm going over to chapter 5, verse 8. Those who join house to house, who cannot uh, connect field, who connect field with field. If you go to uh, the first book of Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 to 16, you'll see a story that uh, brings this out exactly how... um, the king wanted uh, a neighbor's vineyard to add to his, and the neighbor didn't want to sell it, refused to sell it, uh, but his conniving wife, the king's conniving wife, had the neighbor killed, and because he was no longer in existence, the king automatically assumed uh, control and ownership of the connecting vineyard. Uh, that's a direct reference here. Okay. But the idea of vineyards, uh, vines, grapes, etc., is used frequently throughout the Bible. Okay. Uh, I want to go over and bring your attention to on chapter uh, page twenty-five. In the commentary, in the middle of the page, that whole paragraph is sort of a summary of what. I talked about this morning. Uh, the wealthy lived in excess, but the prophet assumed that they would, um, assumes, assures them that they will uh, learn what it means to live on the subsistence level, that is, off of the land of the earth. The people of means were able to acquire their wealth by ignoring God's will, by perverting the values of traditional Israelite morality, and by their conceit and bribery. Because they have ignored the Torah, which makes God's will uh, for Israel clear, they can expect only the worst. Unable to cope, they will die in record numbers, and the poor will be able to reclaim their heritage. But God will ensure that justice triumphs.